0: 236 Therefore let all Israel be assured of this God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah When the people heard this they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles Brothers what shall we do Peter replied Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3000 were added to their numbers that day They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and the possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Philippians 2.1, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one of mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, rather in humility value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Thank you.
1: Let me pray for us and uh, we'll take a look at our relationship with community from these passages. Lord Jesus, I need you to work in the words that come out of my mouth that they would be clear and encouraging and of you. And Holy Spirit, my friends in the seats need your help just to see Jesus clearly and not blurry not opaque, not blind. So come and give them eyes, come and give them ears, whether they've known you for years or don't know you. Work in their hearts that these words would find fertile soil to take root and grow in. We pray that in your name, amen. I don't know if you uh, have read this or seen it yet, but earlier this year in 2023, the Surgeon General released a nationwide health advisory. And the one that he released this year was unique because it was the first time ever that one of these nationwide health alerts didn't really have anything to do with an actual disease or a tangible health threat, like they've done these on gun violence before. This one was different. It was on loneliness. And he titled this 82-page report, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation. Now, this is the same Surgeon General that was uh, at the helm during a three-year-long global epidemic. I don't think he uses the term epidemic lightly or glibly. And he's releasing this in a report that's usually about viruses or diseases or overdoses. And the reason that he did is because he's seeing that the effects of loneliness and isolation are, having, are are the same as the effects of disease. Here's a few lines of what he said in the introduction to the report. He said, when I first took office as Surgeon General in 2014, I didn't view loneliness as a public health concern. But that was before I embarked on a cross-country listening tour where I heard stories from my fellow Americans that surprised me. People began to tell me that they felt isolated, invisible, and insignificant. Time and time again, people of all ages and backgrounds from every corner of our country would tell me, I have to shoulder all of life's burdens by myself. Or they told him, if I disappear tomorrow, no one would even notice. So then the report goes through 82 pages of data about the effects on our bodies and on our society from loneliness. Here's a couple of examples of what he cited. Loneliness increases the risk of premature death by 27%, which is the same risk increase that smoking 15 cigarettes a day for the rest of your life would have. Poor social connection, they said, leads to a 29% increased risk of heart disease, a 32% increased risk of stroke, increased risk for anxiety, depression, dementia, suicide. Which is not surprising, right? He is saying, if you connect those dots, he is saying, carrying inside of you, whether you're someone with a lot of friends and still know what loneliness feels like or someone with no friends and agonize over loneliness, he is saying, carrying that feeling around inside of you Shouldering life's burdens all by yourselves, thinking that if I leave, no one would ever notice, that is slowly killing you. And again, it's having the same effect on your body. We're not even talking about emotions. We're not talking about our soul. We're talking about our body. The same effect as smoking a pack of cigarettes every day the rest of your life. Now, that's not the, the craziest statistic that I saw in this report. The craziest statistic that I read is this. Only 20% of Americans who report report feeling persistently lonely say that it feels like a major problem in their life. So 80% of Americans who say they feel persistently lonely don't feel like it's a major problem, which made me think back to Flannery O'Connor's comment probably 80 years ago when she said, ours is an age. That's domesticated despair. And learn to live happily with it. And you know the feeling. You feel it or you see it in your friends, but it's possible for us to walk around. It's possible for us to have some small talk conversations like after tonight with a smile on our face. It's possible for most of our be real pictures to have lots of people in it. And yet we resonate with these statistics we feel alone or isolated. And the question before we even get into this is how isolated and alone do you really feel? Have you numbed that? Have you domesticated that despair and that's the reason you don't feel it? Or perhaps has it made you more curious and hungry? You're curious to know, could there be a different way? Could there possibly be a community where I could be known as I am and I could still grow, I could still be loved? A community where I'm not in competition with everybody else or being compared to everybody else or auditioning in front of everybody else to see if my humor is good enough to warrant a long-term friendship? Has it made you curious if that exists? Well, the report goes on and it says something that shouldn't surprise you. He says, uh, we are wired for community, his words. And I don't know in this cultural moment who they would say, who has wired us for community? If it's some evolutionary adaptation to, you know, somehow it's advantageous to lay your life down for other people, to be vulnerable and weak and invite people into places you don't have control. Somehow that's, that's that's a plus for us. But but you know, we know, we've talked about it the past seven weeks. Why we hunger for this kind of community. Why we're not okay with loneliness. Why it's universally known around the world and through the ages as a bad thing, not an okay thing. And we know because of Genesis 1 and 2 at least, we were made by a relational God for a relational God to be in relationship, too, with other, other relational creatures. And we also have talked about and we also know and remember the origin of this terrible loneliness that we feel, this isolation that we saw immediately after the mutiny when, when we turned our back on God to find life, when we searched to find ourselves or self-actualize far from him and not in him. And that and the consequences of that burned all of the bridges, not just between us and him bringing that alienation, but it burned the bridges between me and you and you and me. And it made us hide, and it made us lie, and it made us compete, and it made us never really sure that you really do love me, because if you knew more, you probably wouldn't. That's what I mean by it burned those bridges. Well, our big question tonight and our big question that we're asking these two passages to speak to and to, to answer is what's the way out of this disconnection, no matter how severely you feel it right now? What's the way out? And I wanna kind of capture the whole room for a second. Some of you, um, you were with me since the first sentence. You feel this now, it's agonizing. You're not having to do any mental work to be like, do I feel lonely? You know, you might be new to Athens new to UNG, new to UNJ, UGA, a transfer student, UNJ. But you also might be a senior who is super connected and you're already living in next year with a new town, a new church, a new community, and none of this. And loneliness that hasn't even happened yet is creeping back into this year. I don't know what your experience of it is, but we all feel it somewhere and somehow. And it just raises the question to all of us, what is the way out? Now there's a lot of um, quick answers to a way out. And we even say some of them sometimes, these are pieces of the solution, but they're not the root of the solution. Pieces of the solution, maybe your mom or your dad or an older brother or maybe something on our Instagram might've said something like, find community, plug in, put roots down. Put yourself out there. Take a risk. Keep showing up. And all of that is good advice. And many of you have courageously done that. Maybe even tonight you did that. And that's why you're here. And those are all good things. And they do tend to lead towards better connection. But they're the piece of a solution. They're not the root or the source of the solution to this disconnection and this loneliness. And we all know it. And a few other examples of why we know it is... Maybe you did put yourself out there. You went through rush. You didn't really want to. It was intimidating to you, but you did it. And you showed up day after day, and you finished it, and you got a bid. And you still feel so alone and out of place and awkward, even in your pledge class or in the whole house. Or you're a sophomore. You've been around a whole year in the house, and you still feel that. Or you're a sophomore or you're a junior here in this community and you've been showing up you've put yourself out there you've taken the risk you've joined the community group you went to fall conference but you still feel pretty invisible you're a senior and you found your friend group long ago but it still doesn't feel like there's somebody that you can tell your secrets to and so you still carry those inside there's not someone that you could call and say, "Can you pray for me, not because I have a test tomorrow necessarily, but could you pray for me because I'm so stuck and I don't know what to do?" Those answers have just show up. Keep putting yourself out there while helpful, they're not the source of the solution. Does that make sense? It's a longer conversation. It's a gospel conversation, not a technique, conversation alone. So, there's more than just those things, and God would agree with that. The source of true soul satisfying community is divine, it is supernatural. I'm going to be wrestling with you all a little bit in the next few minutes because some of you are going to think, and I really do want you to look back down at this passage while I'm talking and you see it for yourself. You let this passage wrestle with you. But we're going to have to wrestle together because some of you are going to be tempted to say, This is a pipe dream, this is utopia. I've never experienced this maybe. I I hope that's not your story, but for some it is. I've never experienced this in the church, in Christian community, or if you're not a Christian, I've never experienced this anywhere. This kind of open-heartedness towards each other, self-sacrifice, other-centeredness. And I just said that the source of this community is divine. It's supernatural, which means it's okay if it's impossible with man. All things are possible with God. It's okay if we can't social engineer or program our way to this kind of vulnerable, intimate community. If, if the spirit of the resurrected Jesus is the one doing it, then, then maybe we can listen a little bit longer and hope can come back into the picture. The source of soul satisfying community is supernatural. Where am I getting that from the passage, verse 38? We're going to talk about this sermon just briefly in a second, but just to show you this, Peter Peter is preaching at Pentecost, which I'll explain in a second, and and he's calling these people, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, and your sins will be forgiven, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And right after that, it says, verse 41, those who accepted this message, so those who had ears to hear, eyes to see, and hearts to believe... Those that the Holy Spirit was already opening up to Jesus and His gospel. Those who accepted the message were baptized, about 3,000 rounded their number, and then all these descriptions of the community that we're talking about tonight. They devoted themselves to learning the gospel. They devoted themselves to each other. They, they, they gave away their stuff for the sake of someone in need, not being in need anymore. They met together all the time. They ate together. They lived together. They opened up their lives together. And Peter says it's a result, it's a consequence of a gift of the Holy Spirit. So true soul-satisfying community as it's described here has a supernatural source. It's also a gift of grace. It is a gift. Just like forgiveness of sins is a gift. Just like Receiving the spirit of Jesus is a gift. It is a gift. Christians are spirit-filled individuals. That's what a Christian is. But we were never intended to remain spirit-filled individuals. God's desire, his plan, his design was to weave us into each other and into a spirit-filled community. There is no independent study track in the Christian life. There is no independent study track in the Christian life. And people who walk on that path find their faith fizzling like that. Because you were made to be woven into a spirit filled community. Jesus' spirit dwells in community, in, in y'all, in an us, not, not just in a me. But in an us, in a particular group of people, it was never God's intention to redeem individuals and leave you off on your own, but to bring you into a flock, into a family, sons and daughters together, parts of Jesus' body, branches of Jesus the vine. Make sense? That was always his vision, his intention, and it's been his execution. It's been what he's doing through his spirit. Well, back to the Acts passage, what's happening here, this is, this is recording the events of Pentecost. Pentecost is when Jesus, as the ancient pro- prophets promised to pour out God's spirit on all flesh, as Jesus himself said that I'll pour out my spirit, I'll send the helper when I leave. This is, Pentecost is when that is happening. The spirit of, of the resurrect, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now being poured into the hearts of men and women like you And he is the animating energy and the force behind this community and the kind of things that are happening in verse 42 through 47. But Peter is preaching. He calls them to repent. Which, uh, When God calls someone to repent, it's always good news because it means the God of resurrection is there. He's still talking to you. He has pursued you. No matter how hard your heart is or how long it's been since you've even thought of him, If you hear God call you to repent, it means he's right behind you, tapping you on the shoulder, saying, come back to me. Peter says, come back to your God. And he says, you can be included in God's family. You can be included in his people. That's what he's talking about, about being baptized or or brought into the people of God. Your sins can be forgiven, and you can receive the spirit of Jesus And he's going on and he's saying, because this Jesus who died for the sins of sinners has now been raised up out of the grave, he has been proven Messiah and king of everything, not of religious people, not of spiritual people, not of Christians, of all the world, all of creation, of everything. He's the king. He's victorious over death. And because of what he did on the cross, Peter is saying Now you can repent. Now you can be made part of God's family. You can be reconciled. You can be washed clean. And you can be woven into other men and women as a spirit-filled community that lives like this. Really quickly, who is this offer for? You tell me. I mean, not audibly, that would be a little awkward, but rhetorically, you tell me. Look at the passage. Who is this offer for? text says, and once again, I'm looking down and can't find the actual, I did this the other week. Oh yeah, verse 38. uh, Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Then he says, those who accepted his message. Where does he say? Yeah, all who listened. I think I have a different version, sorry. I need to kind of stick with the same version with what's printed in there. But he says, um, all of you who are hearing, All of you who are listening, which is the same as tonight, let's define that all of you because there may be some of you who have self-selected out of thinking that you would be worthy of God's grace. Well, the reality is none of us are worthy of God's grace, but we can still receive God's grace. It's not about our worthiness, it's about him. Martin Luther expanded on this term all, and he said this. Who is Peter talking about? Who is this offer of the gospel going out to? He said, "Jesus, the Jesus who died for our sins or sorry, he said, God receives none but those who are forsaken, restores health to none but those who are sick, gives sight to none but the blind, and life to none but the dead. He does not give saintliness to anyone but sinners, nor wisdom to anyone but fools. In short, he has mercy on none but the wretched, and gives grace to none but those who are in disgrace. Who is the gospel for? Those people. Who is the church for? These people. Who is the church filled with? These people. Who are you woven into supernatural community with? These people. And you're one of these people, and so am I. There's nobody out there who doesn't fit this description, which means um, we're the forsaken and the sick and the blind and the dead and the sinners and the fools, but also the restored and the healed and those who see and those who live and the holy ones, and those who are wise. That's who this is for. That's who Peter was preaching to. Those were the people who were cut to the heart. Those were the people who accepted the message. Those were the people who started to gather together almost as an immediate consequence of this grace of God unleashed in their lives. Now, I don't know if any of you have started to wonder this in your mind, but maybe you would have if I'd kept talking for another minute or two, but there may be a friend in the room, a critic in the room, who's who's starting to develop this pushback of this question and you're thinking, are you saying, Ben, that you have to be a Christian to experience deep, satisfying friendship, community? And if you phrase the question like that, I'd say, no, you don't. To have deep friendship and really satisfying community, not so much, because God is generous, he causes his sun to shine on and his rain to fall on the field of the righteous and the unrighteous because though sin has distorted community and relationships, it's not destroyed them completely. There's a stubborn goodness from Eden that persists even now. And yes, you don't have to know Jesus. You, even if you don't know Jesus, even if you reject God completely, you can still experience the gifts of God. So this is why uh, the UGA football team doesn't have to be believers, doesn't have to like, have faith in Jesus to experience profound solidarity and commitment to each other on the field. I think they do. They, they talk about themselves as family, as brothers. This is why soldiers who go to war don't have to believe in Jesus and they can be bound together in combat as a band of brothers who would die for each other. This is why you or one of your friends may be in a fraternity, in a sorority, and you're like, I taste brotherhood there. I taste sisterhood there. This is why after huge loss or trauma, like Ukrainians can feel united, or Americans after 9-11 can be that rally rally around the flag, we're bound together, we're one, they can experience that. And it's real. But if the critic was to come back and say, but does one have to be a Christian to experience this kind of community? Fundamentally selfless and self-giving. Where we are bound together by a common awe and amazement at the goodness of God. Where we are serving each other not so that we can be served back. Where we are sharing with each other, not so that you owe me one when I have a rainy day, but because it's a consequence of of Jesus' mercy to us. Can that kind of community exist if you are not alive in Jesus? Absolutely not. It cannot. Why? Because we said this kind of community is of supernatural origin. You can't engineer your way to it. You can't get involved in the right number of student organizations or go to the right number of ministries and make that happen. It only happens in and through Jesus. You must be alive in him to be intimately bound to other people the way your soul craves and hungers to be bound to other people. Whether you're a Christian or not, your soul wants this. Who doesn't want this? Who doesn't want this kind of community, this kind of friend? Back to the football team, the solidarity they feel, the camaraderie the soldiers feel, the brotherhood the fraternity guys feel, that is real and it is good, but it is a faint, faint shadow of a far deeper substance that is found in Jesus. I experienced this because um, I went from four years of an amazing experience in my fraternity and very tight relationships to being converted about two weeks after I graduated and was still in Athens for a couple of months before I found out I got into grad school here. And I got to experience the compare and contrast of fraternity brotherhood. And then when God cut me to the heart and convicted me of how I had sinned against him and grieved him, when he made me alive, and, and he was no longer just an idea that I read about, but a, but a burning, living, vibrant reality in my life. And I, I heard about RUF, and I finally said yes to the guy who'd been inviting me for two years, and I came. And I started to experience a fundamentally different kind of person here and friendship here and community. Same with Redeemer, the church that, that we're sitting in. I have a friend who is a, who's been a Christian for 20 years. He became a Christian because of RUF Friday Frisbee. His friend, his hallmate in Creswell, invited him, and he loved Frisbee, so he came, and he started to do the compare and contrast as an atheist of how his friends interacted with each other and related to each other, and how those guys and girls on the field treated each other and loved each other. Caustic sarcasm. People who are for each other. And it's not like they were sinners and they weren't. They owned it more often. They asked forgiveness more often. They were open about present tense struggles more often. They were real. There was a depth to conversation. There was a joy. There was an inclusiveness. Those things are good, but they're the faintest shadow of the real thing. Do you believe the real thing exists? Do you believe it's possible? In Jesus it is. So in him I tasted true community for the first time. It is no coincidence that within the first year of God bringing me and weaving me into true community, I shared my last secret that was the hardest of ever to share. It's no coincidence that uh, light finally came in to some of the last and darkest sin struggles that I had never figured out how to live with. It was no coincidence that I started looking at other guys that lived on my street who all went to RUF and and this church and other churches. And and they started to rub off on me. And I was like, I want to be a better man. I want to love people better. I want to, like I see them reading, I'm like, I want to read my Bible more. I want to pray. Like these guys are taking this seriously. I want that. Their hearts lit my heart on fire. That's no coincidence of where it happened. It's the real thing. And it's possible. It's possible. How does Peter describe the real thing? I'm just going to be very brief because I've already asked you to please look down and scan and and read 42 to 47, but he's talking about a communal, shared hunger to grow together and learn the gospel, sharing of life, of meals, of hearts, of prayers, of struggles, of burdens. It's a common experience of God's, of just being in awe of what he's doing that could be tangible stuff too, of being in awe of like what he's doing in the freshman fellowship prayer group you lead or what he's doing in that senior that prayed or. It's people who have been lifted above their old individualism and lifted out of their projects of self and their agendas so that they actually shared everything in common. It's not a bunch of individuals anymore simply competing for attention or a leadership position or more people know my name now. But remember that 2 Corinthians 5 passage that we've mentioned several weeks in a row. Why did Jesus die? That those he died for might no longer live for themselves but for him who gave himself for them. The beautiful self-forgetfulness that comes with the gospel. The burden of always having to obsess about you is lifted. That's this community, a common generosity. It's this deep-hearted, spirit-driven community. Now I wanna ask you, this came to my mind and I think it's pertinent to some of you. Um, I was like, it it seems so easy for them because it just happened to them, right? What if someone in this community moved? I mean, people back then didn't move much, but let's say they like moved to a town, you know, a three day walk away. What happens then? What would they do? Do they just sit there and say, "Oh, maybe the apostle Peter will come and preach another sermon and I can listen to that and be baptized again or something and then like I'll be like just walk to this house and it's just kind of set up ready to go?" They'd have to believe by faith I was made for this. This is possible. This is God. This is my destiny. And when they met a Christian, they'd have to start acting as if this is true because deep down they knew this was true. Does that make sense? That's what a little bit what living by faith is. I'm not saying act as if it's true because you don't know if it's true. Act as if it's true even though you don't feel like it's true in a new town, in a new place. Some of you are about to move to new cities. Can you land in that new city and because of this picture of supernatural, spirit-filled, gracious community, can you actually move toward the church even though it's awkward and weird that first year or two? Believing that this is what's ahead of you and that you're going to be a part of building it. Again, I said some of y'all might think this is utopian, you think it's Hollywood, and I I might agree with you because this this is something historically unique. This is like Christian community with the volume turned up. The Holy Spirit is doing something unique in this beginning of the church, this birth of the church, but it is setting a trajectory that we're still on. Same song, volume might be turned down a little bit, not as acute, not as intense, more ordinary, but same trajectory, same plot line, same contours. And it's so important that we um, talk about this last passage as we finish tonight. I put these two passages on this sheet. I know it's a lot of text on the page, but I wanted them to be side by side so that we could have the conversation that we just had. And then, kind of that meme that says, um, how it started, how it's going. Acts 2, how it started. Philippians 2, Ephesians 4, Colossians 3, pretty much anywhere in the New Testament, how it's going. And if you read between the lines of what Paul is calling these Christians in a little town called Ephesus, if what he's calling you, if you read between the lines, it's not so Hollywood anymore. It's a little messier, and it actually aligns with our experience of a place like RUF or your church, where you're like, "Ah, I mean, there's some things I love, there's some things I'm not a big fan of." So let's look at that real quick and, and we'll be um we'll be done with this. I should tell you the reason we you have to listen. You have to keep listening. If you don't, you will have an idealized view of Christian community and you will impose it on this place and the churches that you go to and the Christian friends you have. And you will destroy community. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an old German Christian who wrote a book called Life Together. He said, the person who loves their dream or an idealized view of community will destroy community. But the person who actually loves those around them will create community. In other words, this, if you've missed what we've already talked about, uh, if you ask, I'm just gonna be specific, if you ask RUF to be God for you or your Christian roommate to be God for you, you have put divine expectations on them And they will drop the ball and they will fall short of that. And they will feel burdened by your relationship with them and you will always be on your way out of a friendship, out of a ministry, out of a church, on your way to the next one looking for it because you'll be looking for perfection even though you yourself don't have it. Your dream of community that you impose, your dream of friendship with a Christian that you impose on another person will crush them because it's you have expectations for other Christians or churches or ministries that God himself has not set. He himself has not said, that's of me. So what expectations does he set? Well, if Paul has to say, if Paul has to say, you Philippians, be of the same mind, be in full full accord and and of one mind, he's also acknowledging the possibility that we're prone not to be on the same page Not to be of the same mind, to fall back into our lesser agendas. If he's encouraging them to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit or self centeredness, he's also acknowledging the possibility that you and I will be tempted to prioritize our own agenda. I wanna be popular, I wanna be known, I wanna be in the spotlight, I wanna be included, I wanna be invited. If he's exhorting them to count others as more important than themselves, then he's also acknowledging the possibility that we'll be tempted to put ourselves first. And you get it as you go down the list, as you read between the lines. If Paul is having to say, beware, be careful, he's acknowledging our propensity to fall back into a community that's just really about me getting my needs met and using you to meet them. Do you understand what chaos that will bring into a community when you're using the community to meet your needs, when you have not seen how Jesus alone can satisfy your heart, how God alone can provide security for you, if you ask me to do that for you, you're going to be very disappointed and bitter towards me. If you ask your church to do that, but if you ask Jesus to do that, he has and he will As you grow alongside other Christians who are learning to follow him and walk with him more and more as time goes by. Well, we end with Paul's motivation and a story. What's Paul's motivation? Why does he say, uh, be of one mind, do nothing of conceit or selfish ambition, to be on the same page, to have the same love, to do nothing but in humility? What's his motivation? Verse 1 and 2, he says, therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. And Paul's not saying, if this is true, I don't know if it's true for you. I don't know if you're united to Jesus. I don't know if you've received a spirit. I don't know if you've experienced and tasted the tenderness of the Lord. Paul is doing something that they would do rhetorically at the time. It's as if he's saying, because... You have tasted the tenderness of the Lord. Because you have been united with Christ. Because you have been comforted and are now comforted by his love. Because you share in the spirit with each other. Have this mind among yourselves, that same mind of Jesus Christ. Who, though being in the very form of God, he says, emptied himself And made himself nothing and took on the very form of a servant. Being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. As I've already told you, that death on a cross was the doorway into Christian community, into spirit-filled community for you, just like it was the doorway to forgiveness And now, Paul is saying, now that you've been freed, set free from captivity to yourself, now you get to lean into this attitude towards each other, towards me, me towards you. You get to go there. We get to pursue this kind of community. Here's a picture to give you what that's actually going to feel like. I don't know if you know what a rock tumbler is. You ever seen one of those? Any of you kids have those? Uh, I got one when I was a little kid. It was my favorite Christmas present ever. It is this little machine that has this little cylinder and uh, you you get these jagged looking rocks or pieces of gravel and you put them in, you put a little bit of sand, a little bit of water, and then you plug this this baby in and you turn it on for a month or six weeks and this cylinder just turns 24-7, six weeks. And uh, at the end of that, if you were patient enough to actually wait, and unlike me, keep opening it every week, but if you waited and you rinse those rocks off at the end, what has happened is all of those rocks have been tumbling over and colliding with each other and knocking rough edges off, smoothing each other out and revealing a beauty and a color that was inside that you could not see when it began. It has pleased God to make his church a rock tumbler. It's the way and the people around you are plan A for how he is going to knock the rough edges off of you. And it's his plan A of how he's going to use you to knock their rough edges off and polish them and smooth them and for you to be smoothed and to unlock in real time, in real life, beauty that's in you. Glory that's in you. That reflects back to the goodness of God messy spirit filled supernatural community as we tumble over each other and step on each other's toes as we learn this dance of love that's plan A it can be uncomfortable but it's beautiful it's what you were made for and it's one of the things Jesus died to bring you into let's pray together Lord Jesus we have a lot to learn I have a lot to learn I felt like some of this was foreign to me. Some was familiar, some seemed so foreign to me when I was studying this and reading this. I have so many more years, decades to tumble for you to knock rough edges off, and my friends do too, for you to polish and perfect and reveal inner beauty. Do it for your sake because you love this community and you love your people. Amen.